I'm Matt. I'm Nick. This is the Status Quo, episode 93. Right, all right. Thank you for joining us, everybody. This is the status quo. I am your host, Matt Freeman, uh, back once again in the studio with my partner Nick. What's going on, bro? What up, man? Feels like it's been a while. <laughs> I know. Last time I was here, we weren't allowed to leave our homes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no shit. Damn. Now we're not allowed to not speak up and say that we are not racist. Right, and well, you're also not allowed to leave your home unless you're protesting, of well, course, yeah. too. Yeah. Um, (laughs) yeah, so today we're going to talk about the USS Liberty because I've received overwhelming demand. I put out a poll on Twitter last week and people wanted us to talk about Liberty and the status quo is the people's podcast. We care about the people, unlike your bullshit, fake ass, uh, two sides of the same coin politicians. (laughs) So. Uh, in that interest, we're going to do a show on Liberty today, but first I wanted to say a couple things. Uh, let's get the housekeeping out of the way. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at status quo pod. I'm not tweeting too much. Uh, still kind of been balls deep in research and whatnot. I occasionally throw something up, but as always, you can DM me if you want to talk to me. I try to check the DM inbox at least a couple times a day. Uh, Email either one of us, the status quo at gmail.com. Website is the status quo.net. And I finally got my little digital recorder, even though it was a hell of a uh, a journey and a, a difficult one at that with fucking shitty ass Guitar Center, who I'll never buy from anything from ever again. Um, yeah, unless, of course, they want to sponsor the show, then I'd be glad to. Yeah. yeah. Sweetwater is the way to go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, fuck that. We're not sellouts. Fuck them. But anyway, uh, I got my digital recorder, so I'm going to start banging out some short little shows here pretty soon. Super fucking stoked about that. Maybe finally get some of this medical content that several people have you know, giving me shit for not producing any of so far. And you know what? You're not, you're not wrong. I can't blame you. And also, Patreon shoutouts. So uh, since the last time we've done this, we've had a couple more patrons sign up. we got James, uh, Joe the Individual. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate you, dude. Uh, Colin J, Bitfinesse, Matt G, and Alex S. Um, if you if you sign up for a Patreon, you haven't heard me give you a shout out yet. Just send me a Twitter DM because I'm not dissing you. I just am not very good at this. So yeah, send me a reminder. And second, before we got started today, I had to say something about this because it was really just driving me nuts, man. Dude, I fucking hate this whole tear down the statue movement. It's gotten it's gotten some renewed life lately. Yeah. I just hate it so much. Number one, it's kind of this idea that, oh, well, if only there wasn't a couple statues in Delaware, then George Floyd would still be alive. Yeah. Like, what the what the fuck does one have to do with the other? And one of them they took down was a statue of a guy named Caesar Rodney. Caesar Rodney was a famous Revolutionary War general and like of course because he owned slaves. And let's let's not forget, Caesar Rodney served in the Continental Congress in Delaware, and he literally rode a horse. 70 fucking miles through a thunderstorm at night with face cancer. And he arrived in Philadelphia, literally in his boots and spurs to cast the vote. And he broke the deadlock on independence. Damn, that's pretty badass. (laughs) Yeah, dude. So he, his, 
he, if it wasn't for him, Delaware would still be a part of England, presumably. So yeah, that's, that's fucking huge, man. And I don't know, man. And also like the, the guy was, a the guy was one of the most experienced militiamen and, and regular army soldiers of the Delaware had to offer. He's, he played a huge part in the Delaware militia. Like the dude was, you know, definitely a, a huge part of American history. And whether he was a good guy or not, it just, it just, it's such a bullshit point to try to make that, oh, well, this guy was a racist or this guy was not. Well, guess what, motherfucker? Everybody before the year like 1975 was a racist. <laughs> and that's exactly the point. These people, dude, I had an argument with my girlfriend about this and she just kind of consumes the mainstream normie kind of literature about it. And she doesn't really, I try to make her understand like, it's not about, do you really think that these people that want to remove these statues give a fuck about racism? I mean, it's certainly like the people that are tearing them down certainly do, but it's, I think it's far, it's far more sinister than that. It's, it's about erasing history because it just, I don't know, man, the idea that, that somehow we can just get rid of these people that are racist in our, in our fucking history, we can just excise them. Okay. Well, if you look at, look at, there's a fucking huge statue of a dude in in Washington, DC, who is an acknowledged virulent fucking racist. Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. <laughs> but they're not tearing that down. Dude, he literally said, if I could free all the slaves and preserve the union, I would do it. If I could free none of the slaves and preserve the union, I would do it. Direct quote from him in a letter to, uh, what's his name? Fuck, it was just on the tip of my tongue too. Uh, newspaper writer. Damn it. Ah, forget it. So Anyway, I mean, yeah, it's they, they've created this kind of false history about how the North is good and the South is bad and backwards. But no, these were two slaveholding republics fighting yeah. each other in a civil it war. It started out both sides owned slaves. Right. It's a Spider-Man double memes pointing at each other. <laughs> I mean, that's literally what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and if you look through the entire fucking Congress at that point in time, the only person who probably wasn't a racist, who was truly an egalitarian in the modern sense, was Thaddeus Stevens. And that's literally probably about it. But yes, there is this idea that, that, that we should just completely excise everything from our history prior to 1968 because that's when the Civil Rights Act was passed. Right. And, and it's like, I think that, yeah, like what you're saying, it's not to erase racism. They're trying to erase America's tradition of self-determination that the South really portrayed. And they were using their self-determination for horrible things, yes, but the fact remains that they were that's what they represented and they had statues to remembrate. And it's not as if like a statue of general Lee makes it so that we, we act like we're really self-determining people. I mean, there's still a bunch of like sheep in the crowd, but if you, if you just take them down and erase it, I mean, I, I don't know. It's not like the fucking, and besides, it's not like the fucking inscription on Lee's statue says slavery is awesome. <laughs> yeah. The statue says so. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just so more fucking complicated. History is complex, man. Is. History is not about black and it's white. Not, it's not all good guys and all bad guys. Right. Which is, that's the version you get taught in public school. And I think that's the reason why we're experiencing this. And here's the bottom line. Authoritarian dictatorships, regimes throughout the world erase their country's history. Time and time again, Franco did it to Spain. 
Fucking the Nazis did that shit. The USSR did that shit. They took down pictures of the czar and statues of the czar and all types of things like that. And it's because if you're if a people is not tethered to where they came from, they're susceptible to just about any other trick, any old trick that the fucking ruined class wants to plan them. And Americans are so retarded already when it comes to history. It's not going to take much to sever that link completely. I mean, you go out in the street right now and you ask 10, Amer- 10 people on the street what the 10th Amendment says. How many of them do you think will know what it says? They, Maybe probably, one who's a history buff? Yeah, they probably didn't even know there was 10. <laughs> no shit. No, well, they have to know there's at least 14 because 14 yeah. is a really good amendment. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it, and it's, yeah, it's like I've seen, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing things like another thing that really bothers me, really fucking bothers me. I don't know why. Maybe it's because, yeah, we're anarchists, but I, I think we all have a little bit of lingering statism in us. I think we all do. We can't help it. I, I don't think we can help it. I mean, and yeah, mine of course is for the military. Uh, and one thing that really fucking bothers me—I know I shouldn't. It's a super thing to care about. I get in, in in a coldly rational sense. It's the naming of military bases, and they're talking. They're talking about naming all these, renaming all these military bases. Fucking General David Petraeus, of all people, wrote a piece in the Atlantic about how we need to change all these names of all these bases right on the in the Eastern Coast, and. At the original, they, they changed it, they revised it, but I read it when it first came out, and it said that Fort Jackson was named after Stonewall Jackson. Eh, wrong. It was named after Andrew Jackson. Fucking idiot. It, it's like this guy who was a fucking three-star general. Yeah, he no, he was a four-star general who is supposed... And the thing is, like, you know, if you're going... If you go into promotion board as a sergeant, they're going to quiz you about all this kind of unit history and all this shit like that. Like the mil- the army is really big on history, but of course generals are allowed to get away with not knowing who a fucking base was named after <laughs> when they literally were at an installation that was a couple hundred miles away and had heavy involvement with a lot of the well not Fort Jackson because that's mostly that's a basic training depot basically. But anyway, so in this piece, he says, the names of these bases weighs very heavily on me. What? What? How about the thousand-some soldiers that died under your command executing your stupid fucking coin strategy? Does that keep you up at night? <laughs> but the name of these fucking bases does? Get the fuck out of here, dude. That's a good point. Scum. What is such a scumbag? You know, if you want to rename these, because we're talking about like Fort Bragg, Fort Rucker, Fort Hood, John Bell Hood who was a, uh, a Confederate general. If you want to rename these bases, rename these bases because all these guys were shitty generals. Like Braxton Bragg destroyed the Army of Tennessee. <laughs> Fucking just obliterated it. Actually had a pretty good chance of defending the area and actually making some gains in Union territory, but he literally ran into the fucking ground. John Bell Hood, the same way. John Bell Hood was very personally brave. I mean, the dude was missing a fucking arm. He was a lead from the front kind of guy, but he was not a strategist. He was not a big picture thinker. All these guys, they're just garbage fucking generals. So rename them because they suck. Not, not, you know, don't rename them because they decided to go serve in their home state when that state seceded. Like people, and this is what really pisses me off about this whole kind of thing where I, I see even like progressive vets today be like, oh, we have these military bases renamed after traitors. And it's like, wait a second. When did the left become such a bunch of fucking nationalists? Yeah. Like <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> but, but besides that, the idea that 
these guys are, are they're just bad traders. They just they just you know or something like that. Or they just cared about slavery. Yeah, certainly some some of them are pro pro slavery. Some of them own fucking slaves. But if you go read Robert E. Lee's resignation letter to the chief of the staff of the army, who was general, I can't remember his name, but he was really fucking old. Fuck, man, why am I blanking on these names today? Uh, he said basically that he had to go where Virginia went. Like his loyalty was to Virginia because back then, keep in mind, guys, especially military men, identified with their home states. People would say, I'm a Virginian or I'm an Ohioan. Uh, you know, I'm a South Carolinian. They wouldn't say, I'm an American. That's a modern invention. Yeah. So we have to take that into account. And this is what history is about. It's about, it's about getting the context of an era. before you, and, and trying to push your modern day morals and values onto old, you know, onto, onto like the old times, that's called presentism. And that's like a, an academic no-no when yeah. people are researching history. I can't imagine anything less cultured than, than yeah, than projecting your morals and, and your society on a totally different culture. Right. It's, it's just like if every Egyptologist was like, oh, well, there's no point in studying Egypt because they were really evil because they had slaves. <laughs> Slavery. And they were anti-Semitic. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> fuck yeah, they were, dude. Yeah, they drove the Jews in the desert. Dude, fuck Egypt. Yeah, seriously. So so how far are you going to get when you have this kind of fucking idea? And then- Tear down the pyramid in the space. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and this idea that David Petraeus has some kind of anger over people betraying the U.S. Constitution, the guy is literally part of a gun control group he founded called Veterans Coalition for Common Sense. Vets that push gun control are literally the lowest form of life on the planet. Yeah, they sound really I've, cheesy. They, I, I have a special place of, of anger in my fucking heart for these people. This sounds like the most boomer characteristic ever, a vet who's for gun control. Right. It, you're only allowed to have a gun if it's kept secured and locked with somebody watching it 24-7, and you're only allowed to have a gun if this guy who's really high up tells this guy who tells that guy who tells this guy who tells that guy who tells this guy who tells that guy that you're allowed to take it out. And then you have to have it unloaded until you get to a special place where another person has to come through and make sure it's clear, and you have to sign out how many bullets. No. <laughs> Just no. Fuck you. And this idea, and let's let's take it back. Okay, so when you fucking enlist, like, what are you doing? You're swearing an oath to support and defend the United States Constitution, right? And that does not mean fucking advocating for policies that are going to tear parts of it down. I mean, yeah, we know that fucking words on an old piece of paper don't mean shit. Like, but still, if if you're if you're about what you say you're about, then what are you doing, man? Yeah, especially if you're in a position of authority. Like, I don't give a shit about the Constitution, but I want the people who are yielding all the power right. to, which yeah, they don't. It's the reason why they have a fucking job yeah. in the first place. But anyway, yeah, David, fuck David Petraeus, dude. He's not some warrior monk. He's just another establishment hack. That's all he is. And the, I think the thing that really drives me the most insane about this, yeah, it's been said before that the left is just all about projection, which I think there's probably a case to be made for that. The mainstream pundits and all these social media influencers and activists and all that, they act like they're so brave and they're just so progressive being anti-racist and fighting racism. And every single fucking late night talk show around the world, around the country, talks. they, they interview anti-racist activists and they talk so much about race consciousness. It's been race, race, race for the last month and all the late night talk shows. And these people act like they're so courageous. 
Well, guess what? It takes zero fucking courage to be anti-slavery in 2020. These people have all the fashionable opinions that they're supposed to have that's dictated to them by the the cathedral, you know, as Michael Malice would say. So these people would be pro-slavery in 1855, guaranteed, because they have never taken a position that that didn't get them favor with the mainstream. Like they've never, they've never got on a limb and said something unpopular just because it was true. Never. They go along with every the, the Iraq war is the perfect fucking example. So yeah, dude, that's what I think pisses me off about the most is that these people tearing down statues, if this is 150, 170 years ago, they'd be saying that, you know, black people are too stupid to live by themselves. So they need to have the white men take care of them in bondage. That's what they'd be saying. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. And then another thing too, like somehow the Confederate flag is supposed to be this white supremacist fucking Nazi symbol. But of course, you know, it, it, it forgets the fact that the descendants of fucking Confederate soldiers fought fascism in fucking huge numbers for real in World War II. And now we have real fascists in our streets telling us that the fucking Confederate flag is a fascist <laughs> symbol. It's the irony is it's a rich tapestry for my friends. Yeah. It really is. And the last thing too, these statues, they're pieces of art at the end of the day. And uh, it's, it's like any piece of art that offends the cathedral, it must be purged. You know who else used to do that? The fucking Nazis and the fucking Soviets. Every, every, every bit piece of art commission had to glorify the state. Like you see all the fucking the movies that were made in Nazi Germany. They're almost all of them have to do with the Nazi military and about how great the state oh, was and things like that. That's, it's such, just, that's such a good point. Yeah. yeah now, dude. now what are we gonna have? Like, I don't know, man. Like, what what's all the art gonna be in the future? It can't offend. It can't offend the state. <clears throat> yeah. Right. We just can't have any. So who knows, man? I mean, of course, like if you want to have a picture of Harriet Tubman, that's fine. Yeah, but you can't have Aunt Jemima. or uncle ben apparently yeah oh once again erasing uncle ben from the history books it's a dark day in america everybody so anyway um today we're gonna talk about the uss liberty and i was trying to think of like a catchy little saying for the beginning of this year and i couldn't think of one i have one written down but it's fucking lame so i'm not gonna say it so this is really a case of descending history versus official history and basically What's happened here is that this story has been totally erased from the public consciousness. I mean, completely. Uh, once again, you ask, go out and ask 10 people if they know what the USS Liberty is. If there's some older people, like in their 70s, they might, maybe, because they remember when the Six-Day War happened. Other than that, no, I didn't know about it until I became a fucking libertarian. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, I've heard it mentioned. When you're, when you're in libertarian circles for a while, you hear phrases all the time, you know, and you hear USS Liberty a lot. Yeah, I didn't know Jack really. I mean, I thought I knew a basic gist of it, but I didn't really jack shit of it about it until like a couple of days ago when I really started looking into it. And it's crazy, right? Absolutely. And this, this story is also like it's a case study of how whoever gets to set the narrative first has like such lockdown control over mainstream history. It's it's crazy, and even a bullshit crappy lie can can do it just fine because it only has to serve that serve that purpose for a short while. Look at the Iraq war, right? Even if the lie is found out later, it still retains its air of correctness because it was suggested first. I mean, you look at the Iraq war, there's, most people know that the Iraq war was based on bullshit right now, now. But you'll still find people to this fucking day that believe that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. I find guys, I find guys that deployed to Iraq that fucking still believe that shit. And it's like, dude, did you see anyone you were over there? (laughs) 
<laughs> when we were when we were doing our pre-deployment training, we were in this class for to to like identify IEDs. And it was basically fucking worthless because the instructor was like, okay, so if you, if you see a piece of trash, a pile of trash on the street, that might be an ID. Dude, have you trash been to Iraq? Literally, you can't see your fucking boots someplace <laughs> if the trash is so full. It's it's nuts. And They just revolt against trash cans. Oh, dude, they have a huge problem with fucking <laughs> trash cans. So the, the thing is, I remember we were in these classes and one of the younger guys, like this PFC in our unit, he raised his hand and he said, uh, so are we going to have any training on weapons of mass destruction and how to find them or how, or how to identify them? And this is like 2006, right? This is three years later. So every, so the instructor kind of looked at him like, no, why the hell would we do that? It, it was funny though, because this guy literally believed we were still going there to find WMDs. Suppose at the time he thought it was a really valid question. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I mean, the rest of us just like didn't even care, didn't think about that yeah. shit. But I thought that I still that kind of sticks with me still to this day. So anyway, the USS Liberty is the most decorated ship in U.S. history for a single action. And the crazy thing is it didn't fire a single shot, had a total of something like 200 some Purple Hearts awarded multiple silver stars, multiple Navy crosses. The captain was awarded a Medal of Honor, uh, all kinds of shit. So this ship was a converted what was called a victory ship, I believe, which was a class of cargo freighters built in large numbers during World War II. And there's nothing fancy about it. Uh, It was converted, I mean, you know, just a single smokestack oil oil burning ship, you know, nothing nothing crazy. It was about, I think, 450 feet long, something like that. And it was converted into a mobile listening post after the war with four sister ships. And what it did, basically, it had antennas, like something like 45 antennas all over the ship. And what they did, right, was they picked up what's called signals intelligence, right? So it's not like the NSA now where they can just grab all their emails from the comfort of their desk in Maryland and basically intercept communications all around the world uh, at, with the push, push of a button. No, back then you had to go out and get your signals intelligence. Signals intelligence is what it says. Electronic signals that contain information – that's signals intelligence. So we're talking mostly radio communications now. So these are like uh, high frequency UHF, uh, VHF frequencies. These are like military and government radio frequencies. So of course, this is the main mode of communication. And also like the teletypes, which was like an encrypted kind of like rudimentary computer you could use back then. That was also, those signals were also carried over these radio waves too. So they could actually intercept coded messages like that too. So this ship had about a complement of about 300. A hundred of them was called Ship's Company. And this is like the guys that run the boiler, that run the th- operations on the deck, navigation, um, you know, helmsmen, this type of thing. And about 200 of these men were com- communication technicians. Most of them were tasked to the NSA. We're talking ling- linguists, guys that knew how to operate the communications equipment, how to operate the uh, intelligence collection equipment, this type of thing. And they also had linguists on board too, most of whom were Portuguese and Spanish with a couple of Russians because it was the Cold War after all. And the reason that they had Portuguese and Spanish linguists on board is because at this point in time, a lot of the colonies on Africa's West Coast were gaining their independence, which were mostly Portuguese and Spanish colonies. So the United States was monitoring communications in this area. And which, by the way, there were no Hebrew linguists on board because supposedly the Navy, all ships were ordered not to intercept Israeli or British communications. So 
Interesting there, huh? Yeah. Uh, this ship, it was not a warship, though, keep in mind. Had zero armaments. Had four 50-cal machine guns, and these were just to push back borders. That's it. It was had no armor, just regular steel like a cruise ship would. So it's not a warship in any way, shape, or form. It was normally tasked to the National Security Administration, which also sometimes it was tasked to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, depending on where and what it was doing, like what kind of intelligence gathering missions it was conducting. And the day it was attacked, it was tasked to the NSA. Uh, Right before it had been sent to the Mediterranean Sea, it was steaming along the west coast of Africa, picking up any type of radio traffic it could because it was, uh, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these colonies, their, uh, you know, their release from colonialism was not some peaceful transition. There were power struggles along these colonies. Of course, the Soviets were always fucking around, you know, handing out copies of fucking Marxist Communist Manifesto and shit like that. So the United States kept a pretty close eye on this type of stuff and, you know, developed like a lot of these situations were constantly developing. So it's cover, of course, because it was a, a spy ship. It couldn't just be known to a lot of people in the Navy that it was running around capturing fucking radio communications. So its cover was that it was mapping the ocean floor. And at the time that the ship was sunk, it was the third day of the Six-Day War, which we'll get into in a minute. And we'll have to cover that you know what actually fuck it i wasn't planning on doing this but we might as well go over at least a little bit of the history here so at this time the president of egypt which was then part of what was called the uar which is the united arab republic and if you go look at the declassified reports and files that the nsa has it refers to the uar a lot it's the united arab republic and it was supposed to be this kind of union of Arab states, so like Egypt, Syria, Transjordan, uh, and I think maybe one or two more. And this guy was, uh, this president of Egypt was a guy named Abdel, or Gamel Nasser, right? He was uh, kind of like a Trump type figure, right? He was really charismatic. He was a populist. He was very brusque. He didn't talk like normal politicians did. People liked him because he wasn't like, the typical political class that had been ruling Egypt for the last, you know, couple hundred years. And also another thing that he had in common with Trump, whether you like him or hate him, he was fucking hated by the establishment. So no matter whether you like Trump or not, of course, too, you can't deny that all the fashionable, acceptable people like Mitt Romney and Adam Schiff's, they can't stand him. So this is something pretty similar we're seeing. Neither the Soviet Union nor the United States much, much cares for Nasser, but he's pretty popular with the people of Egypt. And this was a time when we had things in the Middle East like populism, um, pan-Arabism. So pan-Arabism is this idea, basically, it's like Arab nationalism plus Arab socialism. And uh, Arab nationalism itself, pan-Arabism is actually a, an offshoot of that. And basically, it's this idea that all Arabs are people are one nation because they have a common culture, common religion, common language. And pan-Arabism was a really popular idea in the 50s and 60s in the Arab world. And they called for political unity of all of the Arab nations of North Africa, of the Maghreb, which is like the Horn of Africa, and of the Levant. So like Iraq, Syria, Jordan, these countries, like in the, you know, what we think of as the Middle East today. And this... They like the the fuck 
the Arab nationalists and the Pan-Arabists of the day thought that all these countries should be one unified nation. And that was the idea behind the UAR. And also that explains why Palestine is such a sticking point for Arabs even till this day. Because a lot of these Arab nationalist kind of sentiments are still, you'll still find them in that part of the world. The Iraqis for sure had a lot to say about the Israelis' treatment of the Palestinians. Uh, fuck, you'll see pictures of the Dome of the Rock, which is the, the, the mosque in Jerusalem in Muslim households all over Iraq. They know what's going on over there and they sure as fuck don't like it. And that's because I think people from the Middle East Arabs tend to identify with each other across national borders. And of course, parts of that is a, is a remainder of Sykes-Picot because a lot of these people never saw these states as legitimate states anyway. You know, they were basically bullshit countries drawn up on a map by a couple of French and British diplomats, and then they sent fucking kings from other countries to go rule over them. Well, yeah, I'm sure that you wouldn't have much allegiance to your fucking country if it treated you like that. So these ideas are really big in the Middle East at this time. And without getting all the minutiae between the difference of Arab nationalism and pan-Arabism, basically what you need to keep in mind is that all these countries, basically, the people of them identify with each other in a way more strongly than we would identify with Canada, basically. And of course, Arab socialism starts to see some popularity at this point in time, and this is where the Ba'ath Party comes from. Like, the Ba'ath Party was an Arab socialist party. People forget about that. Saddam Hussein, he was a fucking commie, man. <laughs> there were tons and tons and tons of social programs in Iraq, and a lot of the... Uh, the goods and services that Iraqis consumed were produced locally. There were all kinds of like cheap types of soap and shampoo and whatnot that people would get, they would get rations of. And a lot of these socialist programs, they like the Americans started to take them apart when they got to Iraq because they didn't really understand like what was going on there and which caused a lot of problems. But anyway, so the thing is, is that, that, you know, we're seeing the rise of Arab nationalism and we know if there's one thing America hates, it's nationalist governments. It likes internationalism, not nationalism. So, of course, because nationalism, you know, people are more likely to say, no, fuck you. Like, we want to do, we want to be our own country. Like, we don't want to take orders from some foreign jackass. Of course not. So anyway, Nasser was being pretty heavily pressured internally. He had survived an assassination attempt. There were some factions within his government that wanted to see him gone. And of course, the U.S. and Russia, neither of them liked him very much. And it's questionable whether some of these attempts on his life might have been backed by one or both of them. And the thing was, though, Nasser was starting to make some headway. And he'd actually been talking to JFK's administration. And Nasser and JFK had a meeting set up where they were going to discuss uh, close, closer relations between Egypt and the United States. Now, of course, JFK got capped before this meeting happened. So that basically nixed any closer relations with Egypt. And um, Zionists didn't have quite the stranglehold on U.S. foreign policy like they do today. So as strange as it may seem, what side the U.S. was going to take in any uh, you know multi-country dispute in the Middle East was not it wasn't obvious. Well, yeah, it wasn't like a done deal, which basically will take any side, uh, you know, as long as it's against the American people's interest today. So basically Israel's <laughs> side. So anyway, that day, the Liberty, it steamed north from the Ivory Coast into history, or at least it should have, you know, if we didn't live under a tyrannical, pathological, lying pathocracy that cares more about... Oh, improper relations with a foreign power than it does about its own citizens. 
Specifically, it's the ones that the uh, propaganda machine put on a pedestal, the citizens that they tell us to worship because they're so honorable and wonderful. And one thing I do appreciate about this story, it puts the lie to all their soldier worshiping bullshit propaganda. So, a little context first. To get to get that, we have to go back to at least uh, 1948 or so to the Arab-Israeli War, which it started the day the British Mandate of Palestine ended. Now, if you go all the way back in our archives to like episode seven or eight, something like that, it's the it's the history of the War on Terror part one, which we never, <laughs> never did. Actually, you know what? This would be a good history of the War on Terror part two because we're going to talk about some of the uh, some of the wars in the 40s and 50s that Americans don't know a lot about. So basically, what happened is after the First World War, the Ottoman Empire was no more. And its territory got divided up among the Russians, the French, and the British. And the British took over what's modern-day Iraq and part of Syria and also Israel and West Bank and Palestine. So this was the British Mandate of Palestine. And basically, it was a colonial operation ran by the British. But the thing is, is that Zionists, you know, European or most just Jews, period, that believed that Israel needed to have a, a state in its biblical location— they started moving there in large numbers, and after 1945, after the war was over, and even during the war, uh, European Jews started moving to this area in very large numbers. Now, the British had tried to control immigration some to this part of the world, but they just basically said, fuck it, and they gave up after a while. So these people, the, the European Jews that moved there and the people that already lived there, which were the Palestinians, because a lot of times, like the Zionist histories, the way they tell it, they'll make it sound like nobody lived there before you know, 1948. Like it was just empty land. Yeah. Not true. <laughs> because the biblical Jews, they never left. Most of them just converted to Islam after, after you know, a certain period of time, after the, after the collapse of the Roman Empire. However, though, there were people living there, and they had been fighting on and off with the Europeans that were moving in. Um, like I said, there have been a ton of immigrants flooding in to Palestine from Europe, understandably so, because they were being murdered in large numbers. And, of course, the British government let a lot of them in. Um, and the thing is here, the British treachery of Sykes-Picot had finally come to bite them in the ass. They promised the same piece of land to the Arab tribes that helped Lawrence of Arabia, and also they promised that same piece of land to the Zionists for their own state after the First World War. And, of course, these two sides. They're like, hey, you both promised us the same shit. Well, hey, let's kill each other. So these two, these two groups have been warring over this piece of land. Uh, there are militias, irregular warfare, terrorism, all types of things. Uh, initially, the, the Jews that had moved in, they had planned to buy the Palestinians' land outright. Just like, hey, we'll give you money. But let's buy your land. And most of them said, no, fuck you. This is our land. Like, we're not selling. So after that, it ha had failed. The, the European Jews resorted to violence. Remember, Former Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin, I think I pronounced that right, he bragged that, quote, Zionists brought terrorism to the Middle East. So if you don't believe me, go Google that quote. You will find it. <clears throat> so what had happened then is that we were, we're watching this war go back and forth, and it had started the day the British said, fuck this, we're out. We're going back to England because we got our asses kicked in the Second World War and we can't have an empire anymore. So you guys deal with it. And there'd been a lot of pressure from the outside trying to shape the situation because you had a coalition of Arab states. So Egypt, Transjordan, Syria, and Iraq, they'd all been demanding an independent Palestinian state. 
But the Israelis, of course, had other plans. They had been stockpiling and importing tanks and heavy weapons from Czechoslovakia and France. These were two of the very few countries that would sell them arms prior to their statehood and early in their the years of their statehood. So following the declaration of the independence of Israel, the Arab states sent an expeditionary army to push back the Israelis and establish this independent Arab Palestine. So after about 10 months of fighting, um, which was basically a back and forth, nobody was really gaining too much ground in either direction. However, though, Israel signed truces independently with each of these Arab states. And a lot of the Palestinians saw that as a stab in the back, uh, understandably so. But Israel was granted about one-third more territory than it had been allocated under the UN partition plan, which was in 1948. Uh, Go back to our early episode on the war on terror. We got a lot of more information on a lot of these subjects. So the armistice lines, which, you know, that's modern-day West Bank and Gaza. These places were still controlled by Arab powers. The West Bank was controlled by Egypt, and the Gaza Strip was controlled by Jordan, I believe. So that's what basically kind of how these borders got formed, at least the way they were in 1967. But also the UN had gotten involved. It was pretty new. And we saw blue helmets in this area. There were UN peacekeeping forces. They had been stationed there to keep the peace between these, you know, all these different groups. But the problem is that relations between all these countries, they were never really, really normalized after the war. None of these groups ever demilitarized. They basically stayed in a kind of a war-footing aggressive posture. Egypt decided it needed to fight back economically, so it closed off what's called the States of Tehran to Israeli shipping. Now, if you look at Egypt, right, you see the Sinai Peninsula, which is the upper right-hand corner of Egypt. That kind of, that borders Israel, and you'll see there's this real, real thin strip of land that goes from Israel, I think it's the port of Haifa down there. Uh, all the way out to the Red Sea. Well, that little real narrow part of the Red Sea is called the Straits of Tehran. It's actually in Egyptian territorial waters, and that they thought that gave them the right to close shipping, even though that's against their national law, but that's neither here nor there, like many of the things in this story. <laughs> Fuck international <laughs> law, apparently. So anyway, they had closed that down, which was supposed to block off Israeli shipping to the Red Sea. And of course, you know, Israel must have just forgotten they had access to the Mediterranean Sea or something like that. So because they decided to invade in 1956 to open it back up. And this is also when Egypt closed off the Suez Canal. And this is known as the Suez Crisis. A lot of people do know about this. But what a lot of them don't know is that the French and the British landed paratroopers along the Suez Canal after demanding a ceasefire. So they said, hey, you guys stop fighting. And everybody said, no. So they said, okay, we'll fight too. And they dropped a bunch of paratroopers to back up the Israelis. Like the Israelis and the British and the French, it had been became pretty obvious they had conspired with Israel to invade Egypt. And this is, this is one of those times in history, very clearly, that's the end of an era. This pointed to as the death of the British Empire as the formerly most powerful military in the world, which was soon, of course, to be replaced by the Americans. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Eventually, Israel, though, they were forced to withdraw. Eisenhower, which is, who was president at the time, he threatened to cut off military aid to Israel, and Israel backed down. Now, this is also a very important date in history because this is the last time a U.S. president had a pair of fucking balls and actually stood up to Israel. So Egypt and Israel signed a peace treaty, and a U.N. peacekeeping force was deployed along the Egypt-Israel border, and 
um, there was also an observation post built to ensure freedom of navigation on the Straits of Tehran. But of course, there was still plenty of bad blood between these two new neighbors. And I think also, let's stop here. One of the global effects of the Six-Day War, which we're about to get into right now, was that a lot of Jewish minority communities, they were either kicked out of their home countries or they were preemptively, they, they left preemptively before that could happen. And a lot of them fled to Israel. Uh, Zionists, a lot of times they'll point this out. They'll talk about the persecution of Jews, but I just wanted to add this here. Um, yeah, when you create an identitarian movement and use it to create an ethnostate by force of arms, you'll often get an identitarian backlash. So the bottom line is that there's no good guys. There's no good guys in this story, like most stories. And this is what history is, man. It's not about good guys and bad guys. It's not that fucking simple. It's about shades of gray. So there's 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 good guys. I guess most, most forces, most groups, most states, I guess most groups of people throughout history are part good guy and part bad guy. Very few people are pure evil, pure good. That's just not the norm. So anyway, in May of 1967, Egypt had been given intelligence from the Soviet Union, which turned out to be bogus. And the question is why? Well, there's a few theories. One is, like I said earlier, the U.S. establishment didn't much like Nasser, and well, the Soviets didn't either. And of course, this might strike you as weird since if, if you know much about the Cold War, you know that the Soviets would give crates of rifles and RPGs to any state leader who picked up a copy of Das Kapital. <laughs> like, oh, hey, you want to read about communism? Here's some AK-47s. Um, <laughs> but this thing is the Soviets didn't much care for Nasser. They thought he was too much of a nationalist. And they were really hoping he would be deposed because he wasn't sufficiently communist, nor was he loyal to the Soviets. He was a bit of an uh, entrepreneur. He auctioned off all kinds of Egyptian loyalty and assets to the highest bidder. So they decided by provoking him to, to do something rash, like starting a war, they hoped they could get the Israeli military to handle that problem for him, or that his own people would depose him, and then they could get to work installing somebody more acceptable to the Politburo. The false intelligence that they gave the Egyptians was that Israel was planning an attack on the Syrian border, which was they wanted to provoke Nasser into either attacking Egypt preemptively or repositioning some of his army units. So the thing is, is that recent studies of Polish archives have shown us that the Soviets, who had close ties with Syria, which of course that's something that CNN doesn't want you to know that, you know, it's not the, the Russians are trying to stop America's glorious jihadist revolution which they are. No, it's like they've had historically close ties with Syria. Uh, but the thing is, the Soviets had intel pointing to an imminent attack on Syria and its new radical left government. Like they knew it was going to happen. But they calculated that if Egypt could be persuaded to mass troops on Israel's southern border, that the Israelis would back down since they thought their military was too small to fight a two-front war. Well, of course, the Soviets miscalculated. <laughs> Nasser shut down the Straits of Tehran, which gave Israel the excuse it needed to start the war. Um, something to realize is that Zionists have always believed that some of the land surrounding modern-day Israel actually belongs to them. They use God as their real estate agent, which is, you know, whether you believe what they do or not, I don't think that's what the book meant. I don't think God wanted people conquering each other and holding them under force of arms just because, you know, where some boundary lines were drawn fucking 3,000 years ago. I think you're kind of missing the point of that book there. Yeah, I mean, the state of Israel breaks several of the Ten Commandments. Absolutely, yeah. So the Golan Heights in Syria, the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt, parts of Jordan, southern Lebanon, 
uh, the Likud party still calls this whole area Greater Israel to this day. And one of their overarching goals has been the conquest and annexation of all that land. And this is why every time Israel fights a major war, it tries to occupy as much of that land as it can. And then it usually is forced to give up most of it in the peace treaties afterwards, either by the U.S. or the U.N. But they do get to keep a little bit of it. And you can see the borders like overlaid over time. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is why Trump's, quote-unquote, allowing them to start settling the Golan Heights is so shocking. It's a departure from international law that state borders, you know, the tenet that state borders cannot be changed by military conquest. That's been around since, you know, 1945 and the Nuremberg Laws. So anyway, in June of 1967, Egyptian President Nasser announced that the Straits of Tehran would be closed to Israeli shipping, and he deployed his army along the Israeli border. He also kicked out the UN peacekeepers. Now, Keep in mind, the Straits of Tehran being closed only affected about 4% of Israeli shipping. But so it wasn't like they were choking them off economically, like Israel does the Palestinians today. Uh, However, though, Israel had been training its pilots in secrecy to carry out the plan that they had been planning for almost a decade. And this, of course, was the perfect excuse to launch it. So, June 5th, Israel launched. Uh, preemptive strikes on Egypt's air bases and air force, claiming that the Egyptian air force was about to bomb Israel. And of course, Zionists will repeat the claim to this day that Israel attacked them first. Um, But it doesn't seem to be that way. Israel's prime minister at the time says otherwise, though. In 1982, Menachem Begin declared, in June 1967, we had a choice. The Egyptian army concentrations in the Sinai approaches did not prove that Nasser was really about to attack us. We must be honest with ourselves. We decided to attack him. It's funny how people, you know, Zionists, will ignore the words of one of their own dudes when it goes against their narrative. So, to that point, the Israeli Air Force had been training for months for just such an attack. Its pilots had been required to memorize their routes. They were required to memorize what specific part of each airfield they were bombing. They had practiced disabling runways on air, an aircraft on mock runways in the desert in total secret. And also, their strike was coordinated to begin right when the commanders of the Egyptian Air Force and the Egyptian Chief of Staff were in rush hour traffic in Cairo. So they were in their company cars. Their, you know, their, uh, what the fuck are they called? Their livery vehicles. So this is a time when they would be out of contact with their forces until they got to work because, you know, no cell phones back then. So they would be unable to coordinate any large-scale defenses. So the thing is, and the problem with their narrative is that Israel caught the Egyptians with their pants down so badly, basically their entire fleet of fighter planes was nothing more than craters and smoking piles of fucking twisted metal. If they had been prepping for an attack, why were there no combat air patrols? Why were there no planes ready for takeoff? Why were the Egyptians unable to put up any resistance whatsoever? Their air air defenses weren't even up. So at this point, first day of the war, just within, you know, 75 minutes, the Israelis had air superiority, or maybe you could call it air supremacy. Uh, And after that, it was pretty much a done deal. The Israelis rained down napalm and anti-tank weapons on Egyptian and Syrian tank formations and infantry positions and drove them back. The Egyptians didn't activate their anti-air defenses because they were afraid that rebel Egyptian army factions would use them against uh, Egyptian Air Force planes. There had been a bit of a power struggle in the government for quite some time. I mean, Egypt's always had a problem with military coups. It continues to have one to this day. Sisi, the guy who's in power right now, he was put in power with a coup. So, uh, you know, there's always been this kind of paranoia 
that's, I think, baked into the cake in Egypt, and this is an example of that being a fucking problem for them. So anyway, the IAF pursued, pursued the retreating Egyptian troops with jets and mercilessly bombed the retreating troops all the way back to Cairo. So by the third day, the Egyptians had been pushed off the Sinai Peninsula, and Israel had captured large numbers of Egyptian soldiers, about 5,000. Uh, they then shifted their, oh, actually, no, it's 5,000 theater wide, and at the town of Al-Arish, uh, the Israelis had captured an entire Egyptian brigade, which is about 850 soldiers. Well, that'll be important a little later. So then the Israelis, they shifted their focus to Syria to push the Syrian army off the Golan Heights. So let's stick a pin in that for a minute. And let's talk about day three of the Six-Day War, which is June 6, 1967. The U.S. had been monitoring the developing situation in the Middle East. The Soviets had a heavy presence in the Middle East and the Mediterranean, so the U.S. wanted to closely monitor the situation because nuclear weapons might be involved. So they sent the Liberty, which, like we said, was normally collecting signals intelligence off the west coast of Africa. Many of the colonies there were getting their independence, like I said, and they were trading distant tyranny for local tyranny because none of them were turning into Ancapistan after all. So the U.S. as a you know global empire, the new kid on the block, had a keen interest in watching that happen to make sure you know their interests were served by other people's governments. So the Liberty was tasked by the NSA to steam towards the eastern shores of the Mediterranean to collect signals intelligence. And like I said, they were tasked with monitoring uh, UHF and VHF frequencies, which are you know, VHF is radio frequencies used in military and government radio traffic. And the captain, uh, Admiral, or sorry, Captain McGonagall, he had warned his crew to be on alert because they were going into an active war zone. And he had conducted endless battle drills, making sure, you know, they could get to general quarters very quickly, this type of thing, whatever else Navy guys do. I, fuck, I was in the Navy. I don't know. But he tried to make sure his crew's readiness was as high as possible. So a lot of the survivors of the Liberty attack, they credited their survival to the captain's insistence on their constant drilling. So the Liberty steamed towards Rota, Spain, and they picked up supplies and dropped off some crew and also took on some additional crew. And these were sailors, civilians, and maybe Marines. We're not 100% sure. And then they departed, headed about headed to about 14 miles off the Gaza Strip, which was, of course, controlled by Egypt at that time. So we know now, after the release of some uh, documents in recent years, that Israeli High Command had actually known about the Liberty about three hours prior to this attack. And we're going to include a bunch of resources in the show notes for this episode. One of them is going to be an, a Chicago Tribune article that has a timeline of events, at least a partial one, that's compiled from NSA documents. So this ship was 14 miles off the coast, right? And... The Israelis have contended ever since that the ship was not where it was supposed to be. But here's the thing, 14 miles offshore, that's outside of territorial waters. So 12, under international law, 12 miles is the territorial waters limit. So that means if an enemy ship comes within 12 miles of your coastline, you can blow it up, basically. Now, states have also this other zone, I can't remember what it's called, but it's in the 12 to 25 mile range. Mile range. They have the right to do things to defend their sovereignty, but launching an attack on an unarmed ship that has not attacked them is not one of the things you're allowed to do. And here's the thing. Okay, so we know that the Israeli high command, at least, knew about the Liberty, and so did some of the radar operators. Because, like I get it, like we'll say in a minute, they had plotted the Liberty's position on a map. But the thing is, yeah, so they had that info. 
But maybe somehow it got lost in the bureaucracy between the chiefs of staff, the radar operators, and the ground controllers for the attack planes. But the question is then, because, I mean, look, that's a lot of moving parts. And as anything if we know, government bureaucracies are not exactly efficient. Matter of fact, they're fucking terrible. Um, but the question is then, wouldn't that ship have been picked up by ground radar, which has a pretty close relationship with uh, ground control for uh, attack aircraft? And also Israeli Air Force Command. So I don't know, man. I don't really buy that. But the thing was, there was a congressional hearing. It was never made public, but it said that Israel, through the U.S. military attache in uh, Tel Aviv, had demanded that the U.S. move the Liberty further offshore, even though the ship was in international waters. So that's pretty concrete evidence that they were well aware of it. And then the U.S. government has maintained ever since that the DOD had sent multiple messages to the Liberty, none of which were received. Uh, There's testimony from one of the reports of the Navy Court of Inquiry. One of the senior officers, I think it was the commander-in-chief of the Sixth Fleet, or maybe it's Naval Forces Europe, one of the two, he said that he was 100% sure that those messages got sent out, but somehow they didn't get routed correctly. They somehow wound up at an army communications post in Europe or something like that. And the crew, a lot of the crew of Liberty, including some of the uh, NSA cryptologic specialists, guys that know communications inside and out, they say that's impossible. The system didn't even work that way. They said if that was true, that message would have gone out to every single ship in the U.S. 6th Fleet, which is tasked with the Mediterranean, and then would have been routed to Liberty that way. But no 6th Fleet ships have any record of these messages. So... I think that's some after-the-fact, cover-your-ass type thing. So anyway, on that day, around 9 in the morning, the crew was just doing its thing, you know, whatever normal tasks take place on a Navy ship. Fucking I don't know. Maybe they're cleaning stuff or something. That's probably my guess. So the cryptologic and the combo people were busy collecting signals intelligence, and some of the ship's complement that wasn't working, they were actually sunbathing on the deck. So, and you can see pictures of these guys laying out in fucking, like, chase lounges and shit. <laughs> fucking weird. <laughs> like, it's like, well, yeah, dude, we know gay stuff goes on in Navy ships. <laughs> so anyway, some uh, propeller planes made flybys of the ship over about six hours. They said about every half an hour they got a flyby from one of these planes. So several crewmen said it was pretty obvious they were on a reconnaissance mission. And these type of planes, they were what's called Nord Noratluses. And this is a twin-engine turboprop plane with a twin boom tail. So you think like the old World War II vintage P-38 Lightnings. And they were originally built as transports. They were French planes. But they had been converted into reconnaissance planes by the Israeli Air Force, which basically bought them under duress. (laughs) France supplied the majority of um, Israel's weapons at this point because most countries were not willing to sell them modern military arms. The French sold the IAF a dozen Dassault I think, Oregon fighter bombers, but that was on the condition that it bought three of these Noratlas as well. So the Israelis bitched about it at first, but eventually they paid up and they started using the planes. They're like, well, hey, these are actually pretty useful. So they bought a couple more and they started using them as uh, transports, uh, electronic warfare program or platforms, improvised bombers, kind of like the C-130s with daisy cutters in Vietnam. And they were also used for uh, maritime reconnaissance, so taking pictures of ships. And at this time, about 9 a.m., Israeli high command started getting reports of an unidentified ship. So some of the radar operators plotted the Liberty's position on a map as green. Now, 
under NATO, green is neutral. Blue is allied, hence the blue force tracker in Humvees. So they plotted it originally as a neutral ship. And these recon planes, they actually flew by close enough for the crew to make eye contact with some of the pilots. And some of the deckhands said they waved and pilots waved back. And they also said that they saw that Star of David and they identified them as their ally, Israel. So they assumed they were doing something else in the region, but they were just checking the Liberty out or something like that. But what they were actually doing were recon missions on the Liberty itself. And they were marking down where all the various antennas were, as well as the gun tubs, watertight doors, the bridge, all these types of important structures. So at 10.55 a.m., a Navy liaison officer at IAF headquarters tells command that the unidentified ship is a, quote, audio surveillance ship of the U.S. Navy. About a half hour later, 10.25 or 11.25 a.m., the Israeli Navy gets an incorrect report that El Arish, which is an Israeli position in Egypt in the Sinai Peninsula, is being shelled by a ship in the Mediterranean Sea. And then at noon, three motor torpedo boats are dispatched towards El Arish. And a couple hours later, so about 1400, about 2 p.m., the ship was moving pretty slow, about five knots, and the American flag was flying. It's a bright, sunny day, excellent visibility, very few clouds. And out of nowhere, several uh, Mirage 3 jets appeared. So these are their delta wings. So instead of having like swept wings like most planes do, these have a big triangle shape for a wing. They're very unmistakable. Um, they're single-seat jets, been around for a long time, ever since the 50s, virtually unchanged. And one of their standard armaments is a 30-millimeter cannon. So these jets, according to nearly every Liberty survivor that was that was interviewed, were unmarked. There were no identifying markings on them whatsoever, which is also a war crime. Is it really? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Uh, I knew it was sketchy. But. Yeah, it was definitely sketchy, but at least these guys don't remember seeing any markings on them at all. Now, high stress does really funny things to your memory, and it's entirely possible that none of these guys remember seeing the markings, and plus they're, they're fast movers, right? They're fixed-wing jets. They're going to be, like the name meant, like the name suggests, moving fast. <laughs> so, you know, it's hard to tell, man. But that's been a pretty common thing for these guys to say. So there it is. So the survivors reported multiple mirages, but the Israelis claim they only sent two mirage jets. But either way, they begin firing rockets and missiles at the Liberty and making strafing runs. So accounts vary, but most say within the first maybe five to 10 seconds, 44 of the 45 antennas on board were destroyed. Now, the 45th was untouched because it had been powered down for repairs. And to me, it seems likely that the recon planes have been able to photograph the ship and the mission planners have marked all the radio masks for destruction. Then it's only a matter of using either heat-seeking or anti-radiation missiles to destroy them all. Because, radio number one, radio transmitters get very hot when they're in operation. So that's a pretty significant heat signature for a missile like a Sidewinder to lock on. However, though, these planes only carry anywhere from two to four sidewinders a piece. So that must be, it must have been at least some unguided rocket fire in there somewhere. I mean, it's kind of hard to tell. Maybe these antennas, some of these antennas were grouped together, so multiples could be destroyed by one missile. It's, I don't know. But either way, I don't think there's really any other explanation for fire that accurate than they had intel. I mean, 
That, I, that makes sense. I mean, yeah. They knew what they were dealing with. Absolutely. But, and, of course, they also targeted the command bridge. And in those recon photos, though, here's the thing. They certainly would have seen the U.S. flag. They would have seen the paint scheme, the stern markings, and the English lettering, golf, tango, Romeo, five, on the bow, and USS Liberty on the stern. It could not have been a mistake as Israel had maintained ever since. Israel later claimed that they confused the ship for the El Qasir, which was a World War I vintage horse cavalry transport that was docked in port at the time. The Israelis knew it was in port. I mean, go look at it. There's a, a USSLiberty.org has a picture of it. And we're going to post that link in the show notes. It was about a third the size. It was painted a different color, much darker, and also had a much shallower draft, which that'll be more important later. And also at the time, the Egyptian Navy vessels had Arabic letters, lettering and markerings. I find it hard to believe that there was any way it could be a case of mistaken identity. Either way, after the antenna were down, the fighters then focused their rocket fire and cannon fire on the gun tubs. And they destroyed these four gun points, which is the only defensive arms that the Liberty had. Now, of course, these 50 cal machine guns would have been totally useless against jets, but they might have helped fend off the torpedo boats that were coming later. And, of course, the four sailors in the gun tubs were the first four KIAs aboard the Liberty. And also, in this initial attack, I think five additional sailors were killed on the deck. So the crew tried to send out a distress call, but they found that not only were their tactical radio channels being jammed, but also the emergency frequencies they used were also being jammed, which, of course, is also a war crime, by the way. Tactical channels, that's fair game. But emergency frequencies, those are supposed to be kept clear. And it's not just for the ship being attacked, it's for other ships, the civilian ships that might be using the same frequency for distress calls. So either way, though, the way I understand it, the jammer would have to know the exact frequencies that their target is using. Because if they just jam the entire VHF band, which is what's used for military radio comms, uh, they wouldn't be able to communicate with each other. And we know that the pilots were in constant communications with each, with each other and the ground stations because we have the tapes. I'm assuming that like the Liberty crew, they heard, I guess, some white noise or maybe some synth tones or music. Yeah, because like when you jam a radio frequency, if it's really sophisticated, you'll hear nothing. But a lot of times, especially in the old days, they would just use like white noise, static, or they'd use music. <laughs> I wonder what it is. <laughs> ba, 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 da, ye, da. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. But anyway, um, so of course... We don't have any details of what the radio operators heard, but we'll more on that in a minute. So either way, though, if they didn't know it was an American ship, how the fuck do they know what radio frequencies to jam? Yeah, that's, that's a question. <laughs> right, because it's not like American tactical channels are just posted on the internet. You can find them wherever you want. <laughs> like That shit's pretty closely fucking... Now, of course, nowadays they're encrypted, and the radio fill is different every day, but that's another story. So anyway... Um, after the gun tubs were blown up, the assault continued. And like I said, there was a total of nine Liberty crew members killed in the first wave of, the air, of aircraft. And these planes put over 850 rocket and cannon holes in the ship. These mirages and the mysterious, the fighter bombers that came after the mirages, they're armed with a 30 millimeter cannon. Now this is the same type of weapon that Apaches carry. And, and, and trust me, like they fuck shit up. They destroy cars with a single shot, armored vehicles, uh, they can collapse buildings. I mean, they're fucking... The, these shells, like the entire round, it's about the size of a one-liter water bottle, height-wise, about an inch tall, or about a foot tall. 
and they fire a projectile that's about one pound and it's the size of a fucking cigar and it flies faster than a 5.56. And of course, they're also, not in addition to all that kinetic energy, they're also explosive or armor piercing or, you know, there's multiple purposes, but typically they're explosive because they're technically, it's, it's not even an anti-personnel weapon. It's not supposed to be. It's classified as an anti-material weapon. So this is an absolutely fucking wicked round. And this was also a sustained attack. So, I mean, they just, like, the amount of destruction that these cannon rounds cause, it's, it's pretty nuts, man. So, thing is, the Mirages expended all their ammo. But after they returned to base, then two uh, Dassault Mysteers began their attack runs. Now, Mirages are fighter jets, but Mysteers, that's an older plane that's a fighter bomber. And they begin releasing their munitions too. They were strafing with 30 millimeter cannon again, and also dropping of canisters of napalm on the deck of the ship. Now, they dropped these canisters on Navy corpsmen tending to the wounded, trying to get them below decks. They dropped them on stretcher barriers. They dropped them on damage control men, which is a war crime. That's against the Geneva Conventions. And like I said, they were also attacking damage control men trying to stop the ship from sinking, which is also a war crime. So at 2.14 p.m., the chief Israeli air controller at IAF headquarters in Tel Aviv tells the controller in charge of the planes attacking the Liberty that the ship is, quote, apparently American. And then six minutes later, the Israeli naval commander of the motor torpedo boat mission, who is ashore, he orders the MTBs to attack the Liberty. And then, now supposedly at the same time, the Israelis say that the Naval Operations Command orders do not attack. It is possible the aircraft have not identified correctly. Now, the torpedo boat commander, he says he never got that message. But then the Naval Ops staff says they pass the message along. Which, of course, that's typical of bureaucracy. It's the not-my-job mentality. Who cares what actually happens? This is not my job. My ass is covered, so I don't care. You know, just he said, he said type thing. So anyway... The Mysterious broke off their attack, and it was quiet for a second. The crew on the Liberty thought that the ordeal they just endured was over. So they start to take stock of what happened. They're a little shocked. Um, but just then, they spot three motor torpedo boats about five miles away. Now, the crew, who had already had two of its flags shot to pieces by the jets, raises up its holiday colors. Now, this is in a fucking enormous 13-foot U.S. flag. It's unmistakable. You can see these things on the open ocean from miles away. But when these torpedo boats got closer, the crew noticed that one of them, the lead boat, was flying an Israeli flag, the blue and white Star of David. Now, of course, the crew thought these boats, being Israeli, were coming to their aid because Israel is America's ally, right? <laughs> Except not. <laughs> there was an officer on board who was Jewish, and it's reported that he burst into tears as soon as he saw that flag, which I'm sure that was a very difficult thing for him to come a, to terms with in a in a bad way right hell yeah yeah <laughs> yeah because he realized like i thought you, or I, I, I termed it as like oh thank god no he thought like this uh, this is what after they started attacking oh yeah and then he realized like these are my people like trying to kill me and one of the jewish american <laughs> oh. officers on this boat was killed yeah. you know <clears throat> so the torpedo boats begin their attack runs they're firing cannon which is presumably 30 mike mike judging by the picture you can see there's pictures of these pt boats too and they were also firing machine guns, which are probably 50 cal. And they fired at any comms equipment they saw and also any crew members who tried to come up on top deck. And at this point, the damage control teams who had risked their lives by going topside at all 
because they were getting fired upon any time they would poke their heads out. They had to stop their firefighting efforts because their fire hoses had been destroyed by machine gun fire. So these, te- these torpedo boats, they also had torpedoes, and they were actually German-made torpedoes that had been converted from their original use, and their original use was to be dropped by seaplanes onto submarines and ships and whatnot. So they were converted to be launched from a, a boat, which is quite a different operation. And these torpedo boats launched a total of six torpedoes. Now, this is a full load because each boat carries two torpedoes. So obviously, they're trying to sink this fucking ship. But the thing is, these torpedoes, they were shit. They're garbage. They were literally the shittiest torpedoes that have ever been deployed by any Navy ever. So five missed the target, but one hit home, which left a 39-foot hole in the starboard side of the ship. That's the right side. And when this torpedo hit, 26 people were killed by that torpedo And I would certainly hope that was instant because that's a bad way to go, man. Fucking bleeding to death, possibly drowning to death, being stuck in a compartment that flooded. Like, yeah, dude, fuck that noise. Like, Part of the reason I never joined the Navy, I was terrified of fucking drowning on a ship, man. Fuck that. (laughs) (laughs) But another factor here that has been debated in online chat rooms forever is the running depth. So torpedoes, right? So if you ever see a torpedo launched, especially from a plane, it hits the water, dives deep, and then comes back up a little bit, right? So to fire a torpedo and have it hit the ship, you got to know the draft of the ship, the approximate draft, and then you have to set the torpedo to run at the correct depth. Because if it's too deep, it'll go right under the ship. And if it's too shallow, it won't do any damage. You want that torpedo hit to hit below the water line so the ship takes on water. So if they were really attacking that Egyptian horse carrier they claimed, those torpedoes would have been running way too deep to hit the Liberty because the horse carrier had a much shallower draft than Liberty did. But mm-hmm. that's not what happened. That torpedo hit home and it hit the cryptologic compartment where the NSA analysts and the combo technicians worked. Uh, the Probably the skiff was what we call it in our day. So that's where the top secret and secret manuals are. That's where all the magnetic tapes are stored. That's where all the translated, or that's where all the, all the transcript, fuck, that's where all the conversations they picked up were recorded and this type of thing. So after this torpedo, after this torpedo struck, after this torpedo struck, these uh, motor torpedo boots started circling the Liberty and they concentrated their cannon fire aft to the rear of the ship, trying to hit the boiler. Now, this was an old-school bunker-fueled ship. So bunker fuel, if you don't know, super, super thick, heavy oil. And a strike on the boiler would have caused the ship to explode because, you know, you're talking about a pressure vessel, extreme pressure that's stored up in that boiler, and any very fast relief of pressure like that causes steam to uh, come flying out, which can cause an explosion. Or if cold seawater hits that boiler, it'll also cause an explosion because of the steam release there. At least that's the way I think it would happen. I'm not a fucking sailor once again, but I'm pretty sure that's how it would go down. And any of you, any of you fucking sailors out there want to correct me on this shit, feel free to go ahead too. So anyway, Captain McGonagall at this point in time had given the order to prepare to abandon ship. So the clue, crew started inflating the life rafts. So the Israeli torpedo boats had shot up the life rafts the crew had thrown overboard and had captured one of them, hauled it aboard, which would have clearly been stenciled U.S. Navy. And 
the order to abandon ship was belayed because the Israelis were destroying all the lifeboats, life rafts, as they were launched, and the crew could not stand on the deck without, well, being shot at. So the Liberty, in addition to the cannon and rocket fire, had a total of 3,100 machine gun strikes. And one of the survivors talks about this in an interview, but he mixes up cannon fire and machine gun fire. He said that Israel used a bigger machine gun round than the United States did, and he describes basically 30 Mike Mike, which is a cannon. There's a pretty big difference there. Uh, cannons are typically, they have some type of external power source. Um, and that's, of course, called chain gun in modern parlance. But typically the difference between a cannon and a machine gun is a cannon fires an explosive round as par for the course. And machine guns don't. And typically the biggest caliber you see machine guns is is 12.7 or maybe 14.5 millimeters. Anything bigger than that, 20 millimeters, cannon for sure. So, but the thing is the sheer volume of fire, like 3,100 strikes, that makes me rethink what kind of weapons they used. Um, it takes a really long time to fire 3,250 cal rounds, even out of, you know, three machine guns. So it, maybe they were smaller caliber. I don't know. I mean, it's really kind of semantics. It's, it's minutiae at this point, but still, I, something I was thinking about here too, trying to piece this all together. So thing is the life raft that the torpedo boat hauled aboard, it's uh, now in the Israeli military museum. Weird, huh? Mm. Yeah. I like to see what the exhibit says about, <laughs> about it. So let's count the war crimes of these torpedo boats so far. So they fired on corpsmen and stretcher bearers. They fired at firefighters. They fired at life rafts thrown overboard. All war crimes. And here's the thing, guys. If I had did any of those things in Iraq, I'd be doing Big Rock, Little Rock at fucking Leavenworth to this day. Uh, after the Second World War, I think there was two German submarine captains that were hung for machine gunning life rafts. So... You, you know, depending on who you are, this shit can be, get you, be very serious and get you in very big trouble. And also, um, in one of the better known stories of this uh, unknown event, an enlisted guy named, uh, what was his name, Terry Harbadier from Texas, he asked Captain McGonagall if he can try to power up the one antenna that was down for repairs that they didn't shoot up yet to send a distress signal. So the captain says, well, how the hell are you going to do that? You know, all this shit's on fire. Napalm's burning all over the place, including in the water. Like, what are you going to do? Swim under it? And he says, yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm going to do. So this dude goes out and gets some bailing wire and some coaxial cable, and he manages to rig up this last antenna, and they, through a patchwork of cables and wires, they power it up, and they're able to send one distress call. <clears throat> one of the radio men had figured out that while the jets were firing their rockets, they had to turn off their jamming devices because it messed with the missile's guidance, which gave them the opening to send out the distress call. And this Terry Herbadier guy, he deserves a lot of credit for saving this ship. I think, at least to my mind, it was pretty obvious the Israelis, they wanted to sink it. And the only reason they didn't is because they got that SOS out. And also, when we're on the end of stories, let's talk about the ship's doctor, too. This dude had a big old swinging pair of brass balls. The, uh, after, during the attack, the chow hall had been converted into an aid station because there were so many injured sailors. And uh, men dragged mattresses from the birthing compartments and just threw them on top of mess tables, which basically turned them into makeshift hospital beds. So, you know, there's blood, guts, uh, instruments, badly hurt sailors, 
everywhere. It's pretty fucking chaotic scene. And the ship's doctor was already slammed with casualties, had very little assistance. You know, some of the corpsmen had been killed or injured in the assault. But the doctor himself, he was wounded too. Uh, while working on a man, he had taken a fair bit of shrapnel, 30-some pieces in his stomach. So he was hurt. But he didn't want to freak out or otherwise give any sign of distress because uh, as a medical officer, it's important for you to give the impression to the wounded guys that everything is under control. Because if you freak out, they freak out. And the last thing you want is your patients freaking out because it's really hard in their bodies. You're supposed to have this calming influence that like, I got you, man, you know, I'll take care of you. That's like what you want to project. So this guy goes back to his officer's quarters. He puts on a clean shirt, dons his life vest, and buckles it as tight as he possibly can, which stops the bleeding and stops his fucking guts from falling out and him having an evisceration. And he then spent the next 30-some hours operating nonstop on wounded sailors. Dude. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's incredible. And why is this story not told to young corpsmen at Fort Sam Houston when they're going through, through, through initial medical training? Like, this is what you should aspire to if you're in the military, right? Like, this is what we're told. This is the ideal right here. But they don't want to talk about it for some reason. So anyway, back to the distress call. During the attack, they were able to contact Sixth Fleet, and the distress call got to the USS Saratoga and the USS America, which were two aircraft carriers conducting war games off the coast of Crete. And in the Saratoga's radio room, the uh, most junior radio man was on watch, sitting on the voice channel, which was something they didn't use very often, because this is the age of the teletype, right? Which is a precursor to our modern Merc. Basically, it's like a chat machine. So you t- you can type mess you can type written messages instead of having to rely on voice communications. And it's pretty obvious why, because if you've ever spent any time on walkie-talkies or a two-way radio, you know how hard it can be to make out what a person is saying. But if you have a written record of it, that cuts down on miscommunication. So this guy thinks he hears something, and he goes over and gets a senior petty officer. So the guy walks over, no doubt with his coffee in hand, and listens in, and he says, ah, that's nothing, don't worry about it. So the junior man keeps listening, and he says, no, I hear somebody... So the senior petty officer takes another list and says, wait a second. So he messes with the dials on the radio until a message comes in, faint as it is. And it says, any station, this net, this is Rockstar. We are under attack by unidentified aircraft. So, well, the radio man, he asked the Liberty, which is, that was their handle, Rockstar, excuse me, to verify his identity using whatever challenge and answer that they used. So the Liberty Radio Man says, can't you fucking hear what's happening? You know, there's bombs and explosions and shit going off in the background. So the Saratoga's Radio Man tells him, okay, assistance is en route. And this guy, by the way, still suffers guilt to this day from saying that because, well, no help ever came. So the Radio Man call up to the bridge, tell the captain, who then scrambles a squadron of fighters, apparently some of them armed with nuclear weapons. The USS America also scrambles fighters to intercept the torpedo boats. And the Mirages, the Mysterious, the planes that attacked the Liberty already, they were declared hostile. And the U.S. planes were authorized to destroy them. So, when sighted. So, these ROEs were transmitted via radio in the clear. So, in other words, there was no encryption on this channel that the, the ship was communicating to the planes with. So, anybody listening in on this net would have been able to hear that message as well. And strangely enough... As soon as those ROEs went out over the net, 
and those torpedo boats suddenly broke off their attack. And then the MTBs transmitted messages asking, oh, hey, Liberty, do you guys need any help? Since we just shot your fucking ship full of holes? <clears throat> no, no, we're fine over here. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> How are you guys? What the fuck do you think? But it's weird. It's almost like they were listening in on US comms. If I didn't know any better, they already had the frequencies. If they were jamming them, why wouldn't they also be monitoring them on the back end to make sure their jamming is effective? That only makes sense. So at the same exact time, an Israeli naval attache, an officer actually, showed up at the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv and informed the U.S. Navy attache that the Israeli forces had accidentally attacked a U.S. Navy ship and apologized. My bad. Like, what do you say? Honest mistake. Right, yeah. Yeah, we're sorry. We thought you were uh, something else. <laughs> it's ah, Man, it's fucking crazy. But it gets even crazier. And I think a lot of people know this part of the story, but they also, there's also some misconceptions I want to try to clear up. Uh, after those planes from the carriers were in the air, uh, Washington, D.C. calls these jets back. So the captain of the Saratoga assumes, oh, it's because some of these planes were carrying nuclear weapons. So he refuels them, rearms them with conventional weapons, and they prepare to launch them again. And on board the USS America, the exact same thing was happening. But this time, after they launched the planes again, Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense, uh, author of McNamara's Morons, where they sent retarded guys to go fight the Vietnam War, that guy, yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he orders all these jets to be returned back to the carriers. So Admiral Lawrence Geis, who's the task force commander, the carrier group commander, he says to McNamara, Sonny, you're not big enough or man enough to make me call back jets that are going to the aid of a Navy ship in distress. So basically, McNamara says, okay, well, if you won't hear from me, you'll hear from this guy. So then he hands a phone to President Lyndon B. Johnson, who gets on the net and tells him, get those goddamn planes back or you're going to be pushing paper for the rest of your career. I will not embarrass an ally over a few dead sailors. That's my best LBJ impression. <laughs> I don't know if it's need a little more twang, honestly. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so well, let's let's make sure you guys heard that. Get those goddamn planes back, or you're going to be pushing paper for the rest of your career. I will not embarrass an ally over a few dead sailors. So the question then is why? Why would they call these planes back? And you would think, okay, nobody said, hey, this. Uh, ship, the Liberty, is under attack by the Israelis. Nobody said that yet. But, you so know. Knew, so no one knew that it was the, uh, like. No. Officially, no one knew technically that it was the Israelis. Look at the radio transmission. Rock, Rockstar, this is Rockstar. We are under attack yeah. by unidentified aircraft. He didn't say we are unatta- under attack by Israeli aircraft. Right. No, they had no idea. So the question is then. The only ally we had in the Middle East really at that time was Israel. I mean, technically, I guess, Egypt, but not really. America didn't have a lot of friends there then. Saudi Arabia didn't exist yet. Or yeah, it did. But it didn't have an air force, that's for sure. Not yet. So that, you know, what's the question then? I mean, yeah, it could have been Jordan. Jordan was already co-opted by the CIA at that point. But they didn't really have an Jordanians really didn't really have an air force either. So then the question is, you know, how did he know that it was Israel? Number two is why? Because we can't answer the first question. That's going to be impossible. So U.S. Navy veteran David Gehari, who wrote a book called Erasing the Liberty, who I I ordered the book, but it didn't come here in time for me to read it yet, so we're going to have to revisit this uh, topic next year, I think. 
he goes through a few of the possibilities. And of course, the most common explanation you hear is that the attack was meant to be a false flag. But this is flat out wrong, and I'll tell you why. The idea was that the Israelis wanted to false flag the Americans to make them think it was Egypt attacking their ship to get them into the war because they were listening to Egypt's comms. And the thing was, the war was basically over at that point, and Egypt was already defeated. It wasn't really a war, it was an ass-kicking. I mean, the only fighting that was still happening at this point in time was in Syria and in the Golan Heights. And also, the only aircraft flying at this point in time were Israelis, Israelis because the UARs, like the Egypt's planes, had been turned into fucking scrap metal. And then, so it's not a false flag. It couldn't have been, there would have been, wouldn't have been any point. And then another theory is that Johnson called off the Navy planes was because of domestic politics. So Jews were very, very prominent in the Vietnam War protest. And because the, the Vietnam War, that was Lyndon Johnson's baby. I mean, it had already been started by the time he had got there, but he escalated it and sent combat troops into Vietnam to fight the MVA directly for the first time. So it was Johnson's war, totally. And then it became Nixon's war, who eventually did end it. But anyway, so Jews were very prominent in anti-war protests. There was even a button that said, you don't have to be Jewish to oppose the war in Vietnam. So Johnson wanted to turn the Jews from anti-war to pro-war. And he and his cabinet, which was full of Zionists, they thought the best way to do that was to be buddy-buddy with Israel. You know, kind of like domestic politics today. For years, presidential candidates would compete to see who could be more pro-Israel. It's kind of disgusting, honestly. And of course, I think Trump has taken the cake for that one. But, yeah. so He's, he's definitely a nice puppet for them. Absolutely. <laughs> Man. You can see, certainly see Sheldon Adelson pulling the fucking strings on that one. But here's the thing is that Israel really didn't figure that prominently in American Jewish politics or consciousness until after the Six-Day War. And that's mostly because of how stunning the victory of the Israeli military was. Because, you know, everybody likes a winner. I mean, let's face it. And also the lobbying efforts in the U.S. by Israel were not that significant at the time. They didn't get stepped up until the Yom Kippur War. That's when they really went into high gear. But there there wasn't any APAC back then or any ADL or... What's another one? The Jewish American League. None of that stuff really exists at this point in time. And then, of course, there's also the idea that he didn't want this to become a scandal and escalate this, you know, this attack into a confrontation with Israel because the CIA already knew they had nukes. That's another theory. And another one is that Israel was trying to destroy evidence of war crimes it was committing. Um, there's been testimony from both Egyptian and IDF soldiers and also NSA analysts about the execution of POWs at El Arish because the Israelis, they captured an entire brigade, like I said, of 850 Egyptian soldiers. And the IDF unit guarding the POWs, it didn't have the manpower to actually guard these guys. Um, it didn't have trucks to send them to prison camps, and these soldiers were needed to be freed up for the assault on Syria. So they force-marched these guys into the desert forced them to dig their own graves, and then machine gun them to death, many with their hands still tied with barbed wire. Absolutely fucking barbaric. America would nuke Tehran if Iran was caught doing that. But it's Israel, and it's our special relationship, so, eh, it's fine. So Israel, of course, you know, they started shooting prisoners. And we don't know how many estimates range from 100 to 800, and we'll probably never know. 
but it definitely did happen. There's enough testimony for us to conclude that it did, I think. But none of these ideas, none of these answers are correct. Uh, here's what Gehari says, because he interviewed somebody at the Moscow link, the red phone, the hotline in the Oval Office that day. So the Soviets called on the red phone, which that's the direct line to the Oval Office during the Cold War, to tell the U.S. that they were going to shoot those planes down from the carriers if they were not sent back. And what we have to realize here is that the USSR had a really heavy naval presence in the Mediterranean. Um, destroyers, cruisers, uh, the Comar-class missile boats, which, by the way, those, those boats, they just fired these humongous fucking anti-ship missiles. And there's actually the first boat to sink a capital ship with an anti-ship missile. It's the same principle as the Iranian fast boats today. You know, basically, you can have a very small investment and the, the power to kill a capital ship pretty easily. These things were a serious threat. And also the Russians had close, close ties with Syria. They supported a lot of the communist movements in these countries. And they also did a lot of business selling arms and natural gas and oil to the local despots. You know, the tin pot dictators we all know and love. That's why most of them have AK-47s. So anyway, the USSR saw these planes launch on their radar screen and they didn't know their, their intent or their target. They thought the planes were going to attack one of their ships. So Johnson said, okay, I'll call the planes back. And that's why they were recalled, according to Gehari. Um, that sounds plausible to me, but of course, we don't have any other evidence for this. Anyway, back to the Liberty. After the torpedo boats broke off, some, some Israeli uh, helicopters appeared. Um, by the way, the NSA released uh, a series of tapes, recordings of the radio chatter between the Israelis uh, in 2007. So the thing is, is that these tapes, there was, the first one was labeled A1104 slash 01. And then the thing is, though, is that the tapes that we have, the first tape we have is labeled A1104 slash 02. So it's like, okay, where the fuck is the first tape? And also, there's this dead spot in between the tapes. And the um, I think it was Heretz wrote an article, and they said, oh, that's where the attack was happening because these guys were concentrating on shooting. But the thing was, they only let uh, one journalist, who was a guy named Ari O'Sullivan, who worked for the Jerusalem Post, listen to the tapes because the Israelis have full transcripts and tapes of all these radio communications. All they'd have to do to clear this up is release them, but they won't. So why is that? That's fishy. They got something to fucking hide. If you got nothing to hide, you got nothing to fear, yeah. right? As this fucking statists are always telling us. So, hey, statist, can you explain this to me, please? Does Israel have something to fucking hide, you fucking dirtbags? Oh, uh, well, you're anti-Semitic. I know. I fucking hate myself. <laughs> I'm a self-hating Jew. But anyway, so, um, okay, yeah, here's the thing. Right, the tape that would have had the torpedo and the air attacks on it, it's missing. And the thing is, there's only three tapes that they released. But the crew, these tapes are from the American side, they came from an EC-121, which is this big ass slow propeller plane with a giant radar dish on it. Basically, it's like a, it's like a precursor to the E-2 Hawkeye or the AWACS planes. It's um, electronic warfare. Aerial surveillance, radar, command and control, all these different functions it serves. Well, they picked up the radio chatter, and they had a Hebrew linguist on board. So the linguist listened to the chatter, and he's like, man, something important is going on. So they just hit record, and they recorded five or six tapes. Then the crew swears they had at least five tapes. But we only have three released. 
So you tell me. And uh, we don't know what kind of choppers showed up. Maybe Hueys at this point in time. It's kind of hard to tell. The French certainly bought and sold those. But the crew of the Liberty said that those choppers, they didn't have, they weren't medevac helicopters. They didn't have a big Red Cross painted on the side. They were full of soldiers in full battle rattle, armed with rifles, grenades, light machine guns, the whole nine yards. So Captain McGonagall sees this and he orders his crew to prepare to repel borders. So they start handing out rifles. And the choppers circled the ships a few times. And an American plane nearby, like I said, that EC-121, intercepts the, heli- the helicopter's radio comms. And one of the pilots is heard saying he can see an American flag flying from the Liberty. So how the fuck did the Mirages, the Mysteers, and the torpedo boats all miss that? But suddenly this helicopter pilot sees it. Good question, huh? But either way, about four minutes of hovering and circling. After that, at about 3.16 p.m., the ground control on the Israeli side, orders the helicopters back to El Arish. So start to finish, this attack lasted 75 minutes, which, believe me, that's a fucking eternity to be under fire. And we have a total of 35 killed in action and 171 wounded out of a crew of 300. And also another good story while we're on the subject is that as soon as the Israeli helicopters flew away, some more Israeli helicopters showed up. And one had the uh, U.S. Naval Attaché in it, who was a commander. And a commander in our rank system is equal to a lieutenant colonel. So that's an 05. 04. No, 05. Fuck me. So anyway, um, the chopper, the helicopter, hovered over the deck, and it dropped down a brown paper bag with the attache's business card and a message on the back of it that says, Have you wounded? And I mean, at this point in time, there's blood all over the deck. There's severed body parts, blown up people, eyeballs, skulls, all kinds of gore and shit. And this paper sack literally landed next to a severed leg. So the skipper bends down, he reads the card, and he looks up and he gives the guy the middle finger, right? So the attache in the typical officer opacity takes that to mean, oh, they have one casualty. So that's what he initially reports to the fucking (laughs) Pentagon. (laughs) <laughs> it's fucking officers, man. It's like, where do they get these dumbasses? <laughs> so anyway, about 16 hours had passed with the ship damage, derelict dead in the water. It was listing about 10 degrees to the port side. Human remains were all over the deck, arms, torsos, heads, eyeballs, blood all over the place. Just a fucking apocalyptic scene. And it took 16 hours for any ship to make the short jog across the Mediterranean to come to its aid. And what shows up is the USS Massey and the USS Davis, two destroyers, and also the USS Little Rock, which is a light cruiser. That's the flagship of the Sixth Fleet. So the wounded sailors, Marines, and civilians were taken aboard the USS America, the carrier, for treatment. And the rest of the crew stayed on the Liberty. So the ship was towed to Malta to be dry docked. And the Liberty crew still had to sleep. They berthed on the ship because there's no room anywhere else for them to sleep because most ships... Believe it or not, don't have a bunch of extra rooms floating around. That space is used for ammunition and shit. And some of the Liberty's crew said that they were actually afraid to sleep below decks. They were afraid that the ship was going to sink. So a lot of them just slept topside. And on the ride over, the Liberty crew was ordered to secure secret and top secret materials so they could be destroyed and also was ordered to clean the deck off and remove all the body parts, just throw them overboard. Um, this is the captain, of course, ordered him to throw the body parts into the sea. 
and then some of the men refused. But man, like this is that's that's fucked up, dude. Like I am sure this was traumatic to the survivors, especially. It's not like these guys had just spent six months on a rough deployment in fucking Baghdad or in Vietnam. No, they were sailors. They were not expecting to ever see this kind of thing. I mean, this is peacetime, keep in mind, more or less, at least for everybody else but them. It was wartime for them. We in the military and the army especially, we really try to avoid having squad mates handle remains of their friends if at all possible. Uh, something like if somebody gets killed instantly on an IED attack, we try to have another unit pick up any body parts. Sometimes it can't be helped. Um, I've personally power washed blood out of destroyed Humvees that belong to another unit to prevent their guys from having to do it. Because one thing that happens after a vehicle's been destroyed, it gets towed back to the base and then it has to go through vehicle sanitization. So you literally got to power wash all the human remains out of it so it can be transported and not be declared a fucking biohazard. And we really don't like to have guys from the same unit doing this because it's, it's a pretty grim task. So, you know, I, as a medic, I often volunteer to do this for people. It's the least I could do. So even while the ship was being towed to Malta, the, uh, the Navy convened a formal court of inquiry. Now that's special oper- standing operating procedure, but usually something like this would look into why and how an ally attacked a U.S. Navy vessel and, and killed and wounded U.S. sailors. But instead, the scope of the investigation was limited to finding if there were any errors or shortcomings on the part of the USS Liberty's crew that had contributed to the destiny of the injuries during the assault. I say again, the scope of the investigation was limited to finding if there were any errors or shortcomings on the part of the USS Liberty's crew that contributed to the deaths and injuries of the assault. What bullshit. Think about that, right? Typical commanders, right? Something fucking bad happens. They look for any way possible. What'd you do? Exactly. They look for any way possible to pin it on you so they can say it's your own damn fault, nobody else's, so they don't get in trouble and it doesn't fuck up their promotion. That's really all this is. But here's the kicker. The court was convened by Admiral John McCain Jr., the father of demon-spawn, blood-soaked monster, terrorist sympathizer, jihadi lover... Scumbag murderer, John McCain. St. John McCain. Uh, you know, according to MSNBC and, and Fox and the Washington Compost. Um, and of course, John McCain Jr., the older one, was the commander-in-chief of U.S. Navy forces in Europe. And he gave the job of presiding over the investigation to Admiral Isaac Kidd Jr. And here's the kicker. McCain gave Kidd a week to finish the investigation. A fucking week. Now, normally a snafu like this would have taken a year or more to complete and invest on. Fuck, if I get into a gunfight in Iraq and I accidentally shoot a civilian, there would be more of an investigation for that. I mean, it's crazy. And of course, because of that time constraint, Kid couldn't interview very many witnesses, he couldn't travel to Israel, and he couldn't question any IDF personnel because of time that was out of the question. So the fix was in from the start. And then um, Rear Admiral Merlin Sering, who was the Navy's former JAG, after the inquiry was done and the report was filed, he was asked to go over the report before it was sent to the Pentagon. So he started to do so in an honest way, and he started to question, you know, about these very sketchy parts of it. So they said, you know what, Uh, forget it, give us that back. We don't need to look over it. (laughs) So, of course, he said it was a, quote, a hasty, superficial, incomplete, and totally inaccurate inquiry. 
And he says this report's full of holes and lies by omission. I would agree. It admitted the testimony about the U.S. flag flying during the attack and it, the testimony of Lieutenant Lloyd Parker, who testified that the Israeli motor torpedo boats machine gun the life rafts thrown over the side, which of course is a war crime. And even if this is a total fucking accident, Israel still committed several indictable offenses, even by its own justice system. And then also, uh, Ward Boston, who's been a pretty big critic of the Liberty cover-up, he was another JAG that was involved in the investigation. And he had a phone call with Kidd after turning in the report to DC. And he said, quote, Ward, they are, are not interested in facts. It's a political issue and they want to put a lid on it. We've been ordered to shut up. Let me say that again. Ward, they aren't interested in facts. It's a political issue and they want to put a lid on it. We've been ordered to shut up. So what I find interesting here is that there was more or less an information blackout on this attack until pretty recently, like 20 years or so ago. And as these men retire or they reach the end of their lives, they give us another piece of the puzzle. They start to come clean a little bit. You ever wonder why that might be? Just about all we get is things from FOIA that are heavily redacted bullshit, totally useless, with very little new info, if any at all. The CIA report's still classified. The NSA uh, released all these quote-unquote documents in 2007, including these tapes of Israeli radio chapter chatter that are missing huge fucking sections, basically just completely fucking useless. The radio communications during the attack, nowhere to be found. The NSA says, oh, we can't find that tape. We have no record of it. And then here's the most fucked up thing about this story. The Navy brass ordered these men to not tell anyone, including their families, under threat of court-martial, which is absolutely fucking criminal. You want to give somebody PTSD? Have them not only suffer an attack like this, but then make them bottled up inside and not talk to anybody. And the same damn thing happened to the USS Pueblo seven months later off the coast of North Korea. Similar situation, ship got attacked, you know, for political reasons, the men were forced to swear to secrecy about it. So at some point in time, when the Liberty was en route to Malta, Admiral Isaac Kidd meets with the crew and tells him, okay, so I'm taking off my Admiral Stars. I'm just one of you guys now. Yeah, sure, dude. Any officer ever does that, you better have your all your fucking hair stood up on the back of your neck because you're <laughs> getting played. So the crew breaks down the entire attack, starts to finish, opens up, tells him everything. So then he gets up, puts the stars back on and says, I'm an admiral again. Magic, huh? <laughs> so he says, if you speak, ever speak a word of this to anyone, you'll be court-martialed or tried in civilian court and will spend the rest of your life in prison. Don't speak to your wives, don't speak to your children, don't speak to anyone, period. And uh, former Marine Staff Sergeant Bryce Lockwood, who told us in an interview about that, about Admiral Kidd doing that, he's a, he said that when he got home from t to Germany, where he was stationed at, he was approached by a JAG that made him send sign what was probably a, a standard form 312, which is basically a military non-disclosure agreement for classified information. And the military was classifying the entire liberty attack, which meant to him that, yeah, he couldn't tell his wife. If he told the media, he'd go to jail. But when he was in a secure room, you know, with classified uh, level, classified clearance people around him at least, he could talk to them about it, but that was pretty much it. And you listen to this guy, he tells stories about having severe nightmares. He talks about crawling under the bed and then pounding on the other side of the bed, screaming, open up this hatch. Like a lot of this classic symptoms of PTSD. And that's the thing that gets lost in the story is that the, the people that survived this attack, man, like obviously their lives are never the same. 
not only did so many of them have physical pain, but they also had emotional scars. And a lot of them, you know, took that stuff to their graves. Like, like PTSD is a lifelong illness, man. It never goes away. You just learn how to deal with it. And here's, this really disturbed the shit. I mean, and the reason I wanted to help tell this story is because, because of this right here. This shit pisses me off so bad, and I'll tell you why. They say that we're some big family, right? Brothers and sisters. They say that one thing the army, or no, sorry. One thing the army loves to say is one team, one fight. Bullshit. It's a fucking one-way street, man. Officers who you give your agency and moral authority over to, they're supposed to look out for your best interest in exchange since you have submitted your will to them and basically you're more or less powerless yourself. But time and time again, we find that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> Officers will fuck over their men, work them like whores on a corner, and even sacrifice their lives to prove how much better they are than their competitors for that major's rank and billet. I've seen what would absolutely be called psychopathic behavior in any other setting by officers. Scheduling more patrols than a unit can handle, lying about manpower and supply levels to look good for the higher-ups, volunteering us for extra missions, setting up extra cops or checkpoints that we can't handle, running units 20 hours on, four days off for, for days at a time, 20 hours on, four hours off, four days at a time. And guess who gets to take credit for all that hard work? Not you. They get to put on their OER, quote, patrol volume is 130% of what previous union did, end quote, or some shit like that. They get the promotion. They get paid extra. They get the nice house. They get to take credit for your hard work, and they get to retire and write a fucking book and get a book deal and talk about how great they were when they were in the fucking military off the back of your efforts. And when you fuck up, because you haven't had a good night's sleep in a fucking week, guess who gets the blame for that? It's not them, it's you. It's an old joke in the army. I hope command shows up at my funeral so they can disappoint me one last time. <laughs> and that's just it, man. They'll use you up. They'll get everything out of you they can, including some of the best years of your life. Your body, your health, your sanity, your will, maybe even your life. They'll burn you up, and if you get in a bad way because of it, I'll drop you like a bad habit and try to figure a way out how to fuck you out of your benefits that you earned, at least according to them. We see people chewed up and spit out by this machine and discarded in the societal scrap heap to be homeless, alcoholics, commit suicide, all kinds of bad outcomes. Once you're out, you are no longer their fucking problem. But even before that, they'll cost you your health, relationships with your kids, they'll cost you a marriage. You're expected to make all these sacrifices, but it's next to impossible for them to lift a finger out of the way to help you, unless they see it as benefiting them. They'll throw your life away for fucking politics, like we're seeing here, like they did in Iraq, like they've done in Afghanistan, because nobody has the balls to end this fucking war. And this is just another case, like, you had all this Navy brass, you had four-star Admiral John McCain, you had Admiral Kidd, these guys that could call the president and get a meeting could go to the media and not get arrested for sharing this story. They could have blew the whistle on this investigation and called for a congressional investigation and probably gotten one. They could have made this such a problem that they couldn't have swept it under the rug. But they didn't. They chose to go the easy way, the path of least resistance. They chose to go the way to make sure that they got to retire. And that's why that retirement system is so evil. 
because it funnels you. It's called funneling, right? Pat and I, I think, have talked about it. Basically, because you have all your retirement money and time invested in this one system where you have to work 20 or 25 years to get anything out of it. By the time you're at year 23, you're not going to rock the boat. You're not going to do anything that's going to risk your retirement. So you do the you do the easy wrong thing instead of the right hard thing. So yeah, man, it's just it shit just pisses me off so bad because I would like to think if I was in a position of power like that, I'd say, you know what? I got plenty of money in the bank. Fuck that retirement. I'm blowing the whistle. And I'd have a fucking, but it's so rare we have officers like Colonel David Hackworth is one of the few I can think of. Douglas McGregor is another one. They're so rare. It's just people don't have, don't see it that way. And David Hackworth, Colonel David Hackworth is one of my personal heroes because he literally spent the rest of his fucking career fighting for the enlisted man. Absolutely an honorable man in my opinion. And then as for the Liberty itself, when it was in the dry dock in Malta, it was repaired, good as new, and then returned to the United States where it was scrapped shortly after. Kind of like the World Trade Center. (laughs) Pretty weird, huh? Yeah. (laughs) And now I'm going to read an excerpt from a uh, diplomatic cable from Secretary of State Dean Rusk to the Israeli ambassador to the United States. Quote, Washington, D.C., June 10th, 1967. The Secretary of State presents his compliments to His Excellency, the ambassador of Israel. Get the fuck out of here. (laughs) That's so stupid. And has the honor to refer the ambassador's note of June 10th, 1967 concerning the attack by Israeli aircraft and torpedo boats on the U.S. Navy vessel USS Liberty. Dot, dot, dot. In these circumstances, the later military attack by Israeli aircraft on the USS Liberty is quite literally incomprehensible. I can comprehend it. (laughs) At a minimum, the attack must be condemned as an act of military recklessness reflecting a wanton disregard for human life. The subsequent attack by Israeli torpedo boats substantially after the vessel was or should have been identified by Israeli military forces manifests the same reckless disregard for human life. The USS Liberty was peacefully engaged, posing no threat whatsoever to the torpedo boats and obviously carried no armament affording it a combat capability. It could and should have been scrutinized visually at close range before torpedoes were fired. The Secretary of State wishes to make clear that the United States government expects the government of Israel also to take the disciplinary measures which international law requires in the event of wrongful conduct by the military personnel of a state. Close quote. Sounds great, right? Well, it's been 53 years, and this is still the official position of the U.S. government. Nothing has changed, nor have they made any extra official statements. They haven't even talked about it at all. But the thing is, in Israel, the chief prosecutor for the IDF reviewed the case, and he actually filed charges against a couple of the pilots and the torpedo boat crew, and and among others, too. Uh, Before the start of the court proceedings, however, the case was handed over by the IDF to a judge who decided whether or not the case should go forward. And this examining judge disagreed with the United States' opinion that the attack was, quote, an act of military recklessness reflecting wanton disregard for human life and announced his finding that, quote, yet I have not discovered any deviation from the standard of reasonable conduct which would justify the committal of anyone for trial. So basically a complete and total pardon. An absolution. Not a single IDF member has been disciplined in any way, shape, or form since then. Nobody even got busted down a rank. Nobody got docked any pay. Nobody had to do extra duty for a weekend. Nobody got got their liberty taken away. 
I mean, in the military sense. Zero admission of guilt by the Israeli government, and that apparently is just fine with the American government. And also, during the Israeli investigation, one of the Mirage pilots claimed that he circled the Liberty twice and they didn't fire. So he assumed they were getting ready to fire. What the fuck? Well, hey, I drove by your house twice. You didn't shoot at me, so I just lit your house up because I thought you were getting ready to shoot me. <laughs> kind of fucking logic. I mean, seriously, like, how could anybody hear that in the testimony room be, and have a straight be like, face? Be like, sounds legit. Right, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Ship it. <laughs> but, so another pilot, who is supposedly the, uh, the XO, the executive officer, second in command of the attack formation, he had identified the ship as American, and he reportedly said he could see the flag and both black and white sailors. That's how he knew it was an American ship. Hmm. So he refused to fire. And apparently he was arrested after the mission, pending court-martial. So he ran to the United States, and he got arrested for bank fraud over here. Guy's name is Even Tove, and um, we're going to include a podcast link to an interview where this former congressman talks about meeting him. Interesting story, but we don't have time to go into it right here. So also, one of the excuses given by the Israelis for attacking the Liberty is that supposedly there was reports of Egypt shelling Israeli positions to cover up an amphibious landing and trying to outflank the IDF on the Sinai Peninsula. And it turns out it was their own troops blowing up captured ammunition stores. So, and also, you know, uh, in the beginning of this attack, Chief of Staff Yitzhak Rabin gave the order to sink any unidentified ship in the area. However, it should have been pretty obvious that the Liberty couldn't have been shelling anything since it didn't have any artillery to shell anything with. You know, guns that are big enough to reach shore targets, you're going to be able to see them from the air. They're fucking huge. Look at battleships, man. That's what we're talking about. This ship didn't have any arms heavier than the Humvee I patrolled a racket. I mean, come on. And also, this claim of incompetence or gross negligence by the Israelis just doesn't pass a smell test. Think about it. The Israeli Air Force had executed the most incredible coordinated combined arms attack, destroyed the entire Egyptian Air Force masterfully in about an hour and a half fought a two-front war, and forced three countries to surrender in six days. It's pretty impressive. It's really one of the most incredible victories in military, military history. Yet, at the same time, you expect me to believe that one of these pilots who can't identify a target with a gigantic American flag, English writing, and black and white sailors? I mean, come on. And then, of course, another objection is that you know, how could you possibly get this many people to go along with an attack on a neutral ship? Well, a conspiracy doesn't need to be known by everybody. All I have to do is feed some false information. Think about it. The pilots could have been briefed that they were attacking an Egyptian ship, so they go along with it. And, of course, you know, the less questions they ask, that's plausible deniability. And then, when they figured out it was an American ship, they told their ground control, and that's when the EC-141 picked up their radio chatter. They were, called, they were told, though, to Charlie Mike, to continue mission. And, you know, maybe they were told it was literally a false flagship. Like, who knows, dude, what is actually on those fucking tapes? And maybe then the indictments that were handed down later were used as leverage to keep them quiet. Like, you see, it's not that fucking hard. I mean, this is just like one possible scenario. But really, the question is, though, is that why did they do this attack? Well, Israel had been planning this war for almost a decade. This is my opinion, too. It wanted the Golan Heights because Syria would bring artillery pieces up there and they would shell Israeli targets. Um, you know, there was some back and forth. Sometimes the Israelis would do the same thing to the Syrians. And there was a tacit agreement between LBJ and Israel 
that Israel would not mess with the Golan Heights because it might cause the Soviets to intervene militarily. We already said they were buddies with Syria. And, I mean, think about like, we're talking about the spark, for, the spark for nuclear war here over some olive tree farms in two shithole countries in the middle of a fucking desert. How stupid is that to have a nuclear war over that? And I think that the Israelis were afraid of the liberty intercepting their communications between IDF units taking the Golan Heights. And they were afraid that, well, you know, they'd pass that to the NSA and who would give it to the White House and the jig would be up. I mean, Israel couldn't have that. Israel couldn't have their plan to take the Golan Heights found out, though, because, well, the Soviets may have intervened militarily. They might have landed paratroopers, rolled up tanks, flew heavy bombers in to help their ally Syria, just like they're doing today. And also, of course, the U.S. could exert a lot of diplomatic pressure, cut off their aid like Eisenhower did. Like, there's a lot of tools they had. But the thing was, the Israelis didn't know whether or not the Liberty was monitoring their comms because they weren't and literally couldn't. There was no Hebrew linguist on board. But they couldn't take the risk. They didn't want the U.S. to know they were about to take the Golan Heights. I mean, the Trump Heights. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, another really frustrating thing about this story some of these guys didn't get decorated for their gallantry or their wounds until the 2000s. Like, there's a Silver Star awarded in 2009. That's almost 50 years after the incident. 40, let's see, would it be 30 or 40, yeah, 41 years afterwards? No, I can't do math. 39 years, fuck. I'm sorry, guys, I went to government school. <laughs> and, you know, these guys didn't even get their presidential unit citation until 25 years later. Bush one was in office then. And then also the skipper, Captain McGonagall, he'd been given a Medal of Honor for his actions, but it was the only Medal of Honor in modern U.S. history that is awarded at the Navy Yard, not the White House, which is also really weird. Let's see, what else here? Uh, I want to read... You know what? Actually, fuck it. We're running long on time here. I want to read... No, I don't want to read that. It's about Michael Warren. Fuck him. So what's the moral of the story here? Well, for veterans, for military personnel, for active duty guys, they don't care about you. They don't care about you. The U.S. government doesn't care about you. They will gladly watch you die for political purposes. And that's all there is to it. They'll sacrifice you just so their friends don't get embarrassed. Exactly. To save some embarrassment. Your fucking life will throw it away. And also, Israel's not our friend, guys. You know, and the funny, like... The funny thing is, like, any anytime I've met Israelis in real life, they're absolutely wonderful, man. Great people. And um, I know <laughs> who doesn't like watching fucking IDF twerking videos? I got some hot ass girls. <laughs> but Yeah, the, and uh that girl super or Wonder Woman. She's oh Israeli. yeah, Gal Gadot. Gal whatever. Gadot, yeah. So the thing here is that I don't, I'm not angry at Israeli people. I mean, they're just as heavily propagandized as we are. It's their government, man. It's the state of Israel, not the people of Israel. So from the start, many of the leaders in the state of Israel had total contempt for the U.S. because they blamed them for the Holocaust because the U.S. blocked Jews from immigrating there for several years. We're not allies. We don't have any mutual defense pact signed. We never have. And the Israelis often work counter to our interests. And we do their bidding, too. We fight their wars. We knocked off Saddam for them. We've tried to take out Assad so they can get to Golan Heights. We co-opted Jordan so they could, you know, not not be messed with by Jordan. Uh, We always are fucking with Iran, who's their only major regional power competitor left over. 
And Israel and America, we both support jihadists, you know, but these Sunni radicals that America and Israel fund, they're not killing IDF soldiers. They're killing Americans. They killed Americans. They killed 4,500 Americans in the second Iraq war. I'm not saying every single one was funded by the Americans and the Israelis, but they did fund those groups. So can we please stop pretending Israel is some poor little defenseless country and has its back against the wall about to be overtaken by the swarthy Muslim hordes? Can we just stop that nonsense? It's the only nuclear-armed state in the Middle East. Everything they claim, you know, poor, defenseless, innocent Israel being oppressed by the powerful Muslim states that surround them, it's projection. That's what they do to the Palestinians. Because one side throws rocks, and its medics use 3D-printed tourniquets because they can't get them because Israel's blockading the Gaza Strip. And the other side has F-15s. So who's being oppressed here? You tell me. We really see how much a tail wags a dog here. The media is so Israel-friendly that zero negative press gets out on our national TV about Israel. If Americans knew what went on in Palestine, they would not stand for it. I hope. If they knew about the liberty... They would demand a real investigation by Congress, I hope. But that probably wouldn't matter because Congress is bought and paid for by APAC. They've said as much. And, um, you know, look at the lobby, the Al Jazeera documentary. You can hear some of the operatives in there, the way they talk about the Congress and lobbying. It's pretty disgusting. They buy off both sides. So no matter who's in power, they're in the driver's seat. But either way, like the subservience of the media and Hollywood elites to Israel is pretty fucking obvious. And worst of all, is pro-military Donald Trump, who loves the troops and secret Muslim Obama hates the troops, hasn't acknowledged the liberty or invited the survivors up to the White House for a formal ceremony or anything. He could have established June 6th as a federal holiday, Liberty Day. You know, this garbage narrative that right-wingers have about Trump being some kind of pro-military patriot is just lame, man. If he was such a fucking patriot, he'd stop doing Israel's bidding, number one. Number two, he'd honor the liberty and the crew. He's, you know, they've asked every single president since Johnson to acknowledge their suffering, to tell their story, to, to do a formal ceremony, to tell the story. None of them have. Just like there's been several veterans groups that have asked every single president since Nixon to upgrade all the bad paper discharges of Vietnam vets that were discharged for PTSD, including modern era vets too. Not a single one of them has done it. That petition has been on the desk of every single president, including Bush, one, two, Obama, Trump, all of them. None of them have done it so far. They don't care about you. All it would take for them to do that is a stroke of a fucking pen. And then so many people's lives, their honor is restored. You know, last week we talked about Eric Lozier. You know, when he they destroyed his army career, they said to him, they took my honor. And you know what, man? I did it to myself, but I feel like they took my honor too. And there's a lot of people, I've come to terms with my being kicked out of the military, but there's a lot of guys out there that haven't, that, have been, that are in my shoes. And it would mean everything to them. And it costs the U.S. government nothing, but they won't do it because they don't fucking care. Once they've gotten what they want out of you, they'll kick you to the fucking curb. So one last thing to here. The American Legion even has spat on Liberty survivors. Their Veterans Association, the USS Liberty Veterans Group, they've been denied a booth at the Legion Convention every year since they were formed. Permanently banned. 
people have gone there and tried to hand out flyers, including daughters and sons of survivors of the Liberty attack. They've tried to hand out flyers and pamphlets about the Liberty, and they've been kicked off the grounds of the convention by security. Um, A lot of local Legion posts have put forward resolutions about acknowledging the Liberty and condemning the attack, but every year they're killed by the national leadership at the Legion level. And of course, the the leader, the commander of the American Legion right now is some fucking five-year naval reservist who fucking never did a damn thing. That's beside the point. (laughs) Anyway, back in 1967, the Legion was one of the first veterans groups to demand Congress investigate the Liberty Incident, but they quickly changed their tune. They passed a resolution to investigate the attack, but that that resolution got buried after complaints from the Jewish War Veterans Association. And also, articles were commissioned for the Legion magazine in 1984 and 1996, but they were killed very quickly before they went to print, too. Uh, They refused to publish a paid Liberty advertisement in 2013. So yeah, the fucking APAC influence monster multi-tentacle squid has a tentacle in the American Legion, too. It's crazy, man. I mean, the VFW has been much more vocal, and I like the VFW much more anyway. The VFW, because they let me be a member, a member and the fucking Legion wouldn't, so fuck them. <laughs> but um, the VFW's been much more vocal about the Liberty attack, about demanding an investigation, about passing resolutions. You go to the Legion or the VFW convention every year, there's a Liberty booth there. So anyway, uh, I think that's all I had for today. Like I said, I'm, I'd like to revisit this topic next year when I've got some more research and, and, and information done because it's an important story, guys. I think that, man, it's just, it's just one of those things. Like if Americans knew about stuff like this, I, I hope that would wake them up, especially veterans, man. It's just like this is a fate that could await any one of us. It's yeah, a cautionary tale. And it's kind of like the genesis of Israel kind of getting away with murder. Murder. Literally. literally. Yeah, man. And you see what they do today, dude. They fucking shoot unarmed protesters and blow their fucking legs off. So yeah, man. Some pretty pretty fucking crazy shit. Well, anyway, uh, that's all we got. Find me on Twitter at status quo pod. Shoot us an email, thestatusquo@gmail.com. Website, thestatusquo.net. Uh, look for some quick hit shows coming out here. Hopefully by next week, I'm setting up my digital recorder as we speak. So I'm super excited about getting that started up and running. Thanks, guys. Like the sound of the status quo? Like our intro music? Our audio is produced by me. Check out the stuff I do at nickwhitenoise.com.